Just imagine that you are lying down in the warm sand, relaxing while enjoying the sun and sea on a lazy holiday. Wouldn't it be nice if every day was like that? Many of us have entertained the fantasy of quitting our jobs, moving somewhere exotic and living a simpler and more fulfilling and meaningful life. Wouldn't a life without the trouble and grind of work be a more fulfilling one? With the ever-increasing sophistication of technology and the rise of AI seemingly threatening mass unemployment, the post-work world might be one that we are already hurtling towards, whether we want to or not. But is a post-work world really possible? And even if it is possible, would a world without work actually be a better and fairer world than our own, in which work plays such a central role? I'm your host, Professor Paul Formosa, and welcome to In the Cave, an ethics podcast. Here to help us think about these issues today is Professor Jean-Philippe Daranty. Jean-Philippe is a member of the Macquarie University Ethics and Agency Research Centre and Professor in the Department of Philosophy at Macquarie University. Jean-Philippe, welcome to In the Cave. It's great to have you here. So you recently published an article called Post-Work Society is an Oxymoron, Why We Cannot and Should Not Wish Away Work in the European Journal of Social Theory. Now your paper focuses on outlining and critically responding to those who argue in favour of what you call a post-work society. And this argument includes both a descriptive claim about whether we could actually achieve a post-work society, as well as a normative claim about whether such a world would be a better and fairer one. So let's start with something simple. What are some of the problems with contemporary work or our modern work society that motivates post-work theorists? Why might you think that modern work is bad or unfair, at least for many people? Well, there are many negative aspects to modern work that many people highlight. Post-work theorists, of course, but also you know, uh, scholars working in sociology or political science or economic theory and philosophers, of course. There are just so many dimensions that could be mentioned, and I'll mention a few of them, but I think we can probably organize this, all these kind of ills of modern work in three different categories. One would simply be descriptive, bad dimensions of the situation of work today, the way work is organized and unfolds for many people today. That would be the first thing. Another dimension is, and that's what post-work theorists are mostly concerned about, is the pathological dimensions to the modern work ethic. Uh, so this ideology of work, this belief that work is a central form of experience and institution in modern society, and many social theorists, social philosophers are worried about what is entailed in this work ethic. So that's a second kind of axis to criticize work. And a third dimension, which is quite philosophical, looks at work as a particular type of action, of human action, and compares it with other forms of human action and finds that some of the features of work as an action mean that we should not make it the supreme form of human action precisely because of those features. There are other ways of acting in the world which are more important, basically, to being human. So that's a very philosophical way of criticizing work. Now, if we go back to the first one, I'll just mention briefly some of the ills or bads of modern work, and then, Paul, you can maybe we can talk in more detail about some of them if, if you think they're interesting. The first one is the problem of the forms of employment. So it's when work is, a f is considered as a form of employment, and there are many ways in which this, the employment situation of people is not good for them. And there are ways in which it kind of does not fulfill their wishes, 
or does not allow them to support themselves financially. So there's the curse of unemployment. Now, unemployment is, a, is an interesting issue to take up. I'm not sure how much detail I should go into here. I might just point out the kind of paradox that we live in in relation to unemployment. Classically in sociology, in critical sociology, in critical theories, unemployment is a big problem because in modern society, employment is a way in which you integrate into society, you support yourself and your family through an income and you are socially integrated. And therefore, unemployment is, in the words of a very famous French sociologist, unemployment is social death. Now today, in most parts of the world, there is little unemployment. So in fact, there's a kind of crisis of employment in many sectors, in many industries, in most countries in the developed world in any case, in the care sector, in the education sector, in hospitals. We all know that there's a serious crisis of employment. So we're witnessing that, well, unemployment today is not a problem, but that we have this looming threat of mass unemployment as a result of automation, basically. So that's a bit kind of a funny aspect to the ills of modern work because for a long time unemployment was a kind of major problem in looking at uh, modern society. It is not today but it might become one. Anyway, so there are forms of underemployment which are quite worrying. So that's that's less well-known problem or less reported problem. But it, it is a problem. Many people would like to work more. And then the most well-known problem around employment is what we could call bad employment. There's many ways in which your employment conditions might be detrimental to you. And so that's basically captured by the term precariousness. Now, there are many dimensions to precariousness. There's a lot of scholarship on precariousness. We could go into this. As it's a fascinating area to study from a sociological dimension. There are very famous studies of it. We can all think intuitively of all kinds of ways in which your employment situation is itself precarious in terms of working conditions, hours you work, the type of contract you're on, the length of your tenure, whether or not you have some form of tenure, etc., which then translate into a form of kind of psychological or we might even say existential precariousness, the sense of having no stability in your life. Some very famous sociological studies on this. Another problem with the situation, just the empirical situation of work is that for many people, there just is too much work. And that's already an empirical dimension of work that post-work theorists are worried about. Just empirically, work takes up too much of our time, just in pure quantitative terms, too much of our mental time, too much of our affective time. The norms of work, the demands of work or the pressures of work seep into a personal life, intimate, subjective life, life with the family or within the family, takeover, life with friends, kind of the, the demands of work, sometimes let's say professional networking, take over in your relationships with friends. So there's many ways in which work is becoming overly important for us. And there are other aspects to kind of the, the bad situation of work we could we could highlight. Going to the second category, it's so this idea that the modern work ethic is intrinsically pathological, and to use a famous concept from social philosophy. And here the idea is that the modern work ethic is basically absurd. I mean, basically, yeah, makes no sense. And it's capturing this kind of uh, formula that we should work to live, not live to work. And the modern work ethic is 
precisely demanding of us as a kind of moral obligation that we should live to work, that work becomes an end in itself when in fact it ought to be a purely instrumental action where you, would, you should work in order to achieve an income, an output that is useful to someone and instead the work ethic has put this upside down and what should be a means has become an end and there are different ways to articulate this fundamental absurdity of the modern work ethic and this is what post-work theorists particularly push on. Uh, they try and highlight the, the absurdities of the modern work ethic. And the third one is this kind of paradox. Basically, this idea that work as a form of instrumental action, a kind of utilitarian action, is intrinsically, from a philosophical perspective, let's say, for example, from a classical perspective, informed by ancient philosophy, by especially the Greek, Greek philosophy, since work is an instrumental action, that is to say, an action that is governed by the telos, the end that it seeks to achieve, where the end is not determined by the action itself. The end of the working action is determined by someone who decides to produce X for Y. But the work simply delivers that end. And since it's intrinsically instrumental, that's the definition of work, it should not kind of uh, dominate other forms of action. And so there are very famous philosophical diagnoses, let's say, or criticisms of work as an action itself when it takes over from other intrinsically valuable actions, typically famously in Hannah Arendt's 1957 book, The Human Condition, Politics. And so when a citizenry comes together and makes decisions about collective life, how to organize collective life for Arendt, these forms of political action are intrinsically valuable for the collective and for each individual and for the relationship between individuals. And modernity is sick, uh, to use a kind of usual metaphor in kind of this kind of critical social political philosophy. Modernity is sick because it makes work which is instrumental more important than those types of actions like politics or trying to expand knowledge, looking for truth, trying to defend justice. Intrinsically valuable actions should not be secondary to an instrumental action. So very, very, very quickly, this is kind of the terrain of the critiques of modern work today. Okay, that, that's an excellent summary. I mean, I'm sure we can all see elements of our own work life in some of those pathologies that you talk about, whether it's too much work, too little work, too dominant or not dominant enough position in our lives. So I think that's a nice way of setting out some of the issues there. One thing I want to hone in a little bit more is what exactly work means. You sort of touched on that all, already, but you have a particular understanding of work, which is kind of a key part of your argument. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit exactly what is work on your understanding. And maybe you've already started to touch on this, but how, how does work differ from other sorts of activities, like leisure activities or playing games or caring or pursuing hobbies or things like that? So what, what exactly is work uh, on your understanding? What role does it have to play in society? Okay, that's a very difficult question. And as you can imagine, there's an enormous amount of, of literature on this. And it's a type of conceptual definitional issue where philosophers can spend a lot of time, find counterexamples, boundary, boundary cases, which might sit on one side or the other of, of the definitional boundary, depending on the context or the intentions, etc. So it's really, really tricky. But, you know, I've been working on work for a long, long time, and so I had to come to some form of solution to this really difficult problem. Here's how I approach it, and, you know, I'm sure it's not perfect, but that's just how the way I approach it. And as you will see in my answer, I draw on other people, so it's not just me saying this. So I think if you read uh, 
philosophy on work or you know social theory or there's a lot published on work by the way we should say that to begin with i mean almost every week there's a new book on work right? it's a topic that continues to to grab people's imagination and we understand there are many issues in our, everyone's lives that are work related if you read this literature basically you can see that one of the sources of the problem of saying what do we mean by work is a form of a dilemma the reflex the immediate intuitive understanding of work is to understand by work what it means for modern industrialized societies and a number of your questions will kind of assume that sense of work and it's fair enough that's a way it's used in everyday conversations that's a that's a usual sense of work for us modern people today and it's work as waged work formally recognized work work as a formally acknowledged institution with a set of rules basically work for an income in, in a formal institutional setting. So that's one way of understanding work, and that's perfectly okay. Of course, it's, it's because it's such an important institution in modern society. So many aspects of modern social life are organized for more than 200 years now around this kind of institution of the wage, basically. The wage institution separates modern society from previous modes of economic organization you don't need to be a marxist to say this it's just the reality of modern society and working for a wage is not just a source of income and so basically of subsistence many social goods or social features of your life will be attached to the wage work your identity because you will then through the wage you will de facto, by default, belong to a particular occupation or profession which will have a major impact on your identity. You will de facto interact with other people in a similar occupational sphere. Your identity as a person will be to some extent structured or filled by the relations you have through that wage work, institutionalized work, and basically the tasks and contact challenges attached to that work. And a lot of social recognition crystallizes on this formally recognized work. So it's totally fair enough to define work like this. However, there's a massive problem with this definition of work, and it's obvious and everyone knows about it, which is that a lot of work goes on every day in society, in families, which is not wage work, which is not formally recognized as such. The most obvious one is care work in families, and obviously there's a huge, very, very important feminist scholarship on this historical, philosophical, sociological, political. It's very well known. There's a body of feminist critique of the wage institution that cannot be ignored. Conceptually, it's a, there's a very famous quip by an economist which says that something along the lines of if someone in the family cooks a meal, that's not work. For example, in classical economic theory. But if you buy the same meal from a restaurant prepared by someone else, or if indeed the same person cooks a meal and then sells it, that becomes an economic act because there's money attached to it and it becomes work. Conceptually, it's absurd because the same activity counts as work depending on, not even simply, I mean, the output is the same. It's just whether or not money is attached to it in a kind of formal exchange defines it as work or not. So depending on what you're looking for, if you're trying to do a national account, maybe that makes sense, or even though even that is questioned by other economists, by the way. But if you're looking at who does work, who works, what type of work, how is work divided, how is work distributed, how the outputs of work distributed, how many hours do people work, clearly it makes no sense conceptually to simply define work in terms of income. 
or wage. So then, if we don't do that, what do we do? Well, we'll define work as a type of activity. And then immediately the question arises, and that's where the philosophies, philosophers pour in. Well, what is an activity of work? Because it's very, very difficult to specify let's say conceptual features that will demarcate work activities from other activities so if if you take out the wage dimension the same activity can count as work or as leisure or as hobby depending on the context independent of the wage so for example if you garden and you are take pleasure in gardening. If you grow a certain amount of vegetables and you feed your family with it, but you take an enormous amount of pleasure in gardening, your vegetable garden. So it's clearly a form of, let's say, leisure. It's an activity, it's strenuous, you enjoy the physical dimension, there's a technical side to it, being a good gardener is not given to anyone, so there's a real skill to it, a know-how, etc. So it's a form of hobby. But on the other hand, half of your vegetable bills is paid for by your work. Well, sorry, by that activity. <laughs> is it, is it, is it a, a hobby or is it work? What I'm trying to point to here is that it's just saying that, oh, well, we just need to focus on some activities and then find the features and that will be work is very tricky because, again, independent of the wage context, in other contexts, it might be tricky. Okay, so how to go about it? And the other thing to say is that a lot of very important work is not... A lot of important work might involve activities that don't really look like activities. That's the other problem. So typically emotional labor or emotional work. So caring after someone is not just feeding a child, tending a wound. It can be talking to someone in the right way. Now, in modern language theory, in modern linguistics, there's no problem saying that speaking is an act, of course. Speech acts exist, but it's not... So as soon as you say that work can be a way of t by talking, then it even expands even further the looseness of the boundaries because there's many things we say which we would never say are work. So when is an act of speech a form of work? When you talk with a psychologist in a, in a therapy room, it's obvious that it is work because this person has been professionalized, they're professional, they're accredited, you give them a fee... So there's a clear work context. But if the same person does the same psychological work to a friend or a child or an intimate other without wanting to be paid, in, not in a therapy room, but does the same activity of talking to them, listening to them, maybe just being silent if they're psycho a psychoanalyst. They just have someone lying next to them, rambling on, and they're listening to it attentively like psychoanalysts do. So we have someone sitting there, not even facing the person, saying nothing, and still they work. So as soon as you look at it like this, it becomes really tricky. So what are the features of... So I've built up the... <laughs> the um, how do you say? The tension a lot here to give my solution. <laughs> so here's, here's what my... Well, one-liner. <laughs> here's what my solution is. I think we need to reject the restricted definition of work as just formal wage work just because there's just so much work that goes unrecognized if we go with that definition. And my solution is to define work simply as an intentional activity where the intention is to produce a useful outcome and to 
lay a, a lot of emphasis on this idea of useful outcome. You don't seem to be saying very much when you say the intention to produce a useful outcome or useful output, where the term output is very generic. It can be a service to someone. It's not necessarily a commodity or a material good. If you say useful output or useful outcome, then immediately you invite the question useful in terms of what and useful to whom. For me, this is kind of the base definition of work. And what we need to do then is just to be serious about each one of those terms and then unpack them. Because when we unpack what is analytically entailed in those terms, then we have a good vision of work and then we have a good baseline to demarcate or contrast work activities from other activities that look like work but are not quite like work. So what I mean by that is, well, basically we just need to start asking useful in terms of what and useful to whom. And if we do that, then we get to the idea of work as the intention to fulfill someone's need. Where in most cases, but not in all, but in most cases, the need that is being fulfilled is someone else's need. Now you can work for yourself. Some philosophical, some conceptual definitions of work exclude work for self, but I think it's a mistake. It's what you could call a kind of marginal case. In most cases, work is an intentional activity that seeks to produce an outcome that is useful for someone else, that attempts to fulfill the need of someone else. And this very simple definition of work basically is the one that has been propounded by some key authors in different disciplines. I'll just mention them very quickly. There's a really good American anthropologist called Sandra Woolman, who did a book in the 1980s called Anthropology of Work. Her introduction to this edited collection is a wonderful conceptual analysis of what the concept of work entails for anthropologists, but it's, it's a wonderful work of philosophy. And basically, she defines work as the activities that are necessary for livelihood. By livelihood, she means everything that is needed for a human life, which includes subsistence goods, food, shelter, clothing, tools, weapons, the classical stuff that older definitions of work tended to focus on to the exclusion of the rest. But leading a human life, whatever human society, uh, so she's an anthropologist, means defining your identity, having a social status, occupying your time. For all of these things, work is needed. So the concept she brought in, but to me it's analytically entailed in the idea of useful outcome is the idea of livelihood as a generic term to say whatever features at a given time I needed to live a fully human life. Uh, so that's one major kind of reference for me. Another key reference is a very famous feminist sociologist from Austria, Maria Mies. She's very famous eco-feminist, uh, critical sociologist. And she defines work simply as the activities of subsistence, where subsistence again encompasses all the dimensions of leading a fully human life from her work, looking at the work of women in India. Another key reference for me is the work of Charles and Chris Tilly, two well-known American sociologists, who define work as any activity that adds value to a good or a service that someone else can use. 
So they would exclude work for self, for example. But the sociologists are interested in relations, social relations and interactions. But when you read the list of things they would list as work, for them, dressing a table for a family lunch is work. So it's the idea of adding value for the use of someone else. But it's basically the same idea. Another last reference I should cite is Axel Hornet, who's a very, very important reference for me because that's kind of tradition I work in, critical theory, Frankfurt School, post-Hegelian social philosophy. Axel Hornet, in his very last book that was published in Germany earlier this year, uh, has a, a similar definition of work, basically. So he uses the feminist concept of social reproduction, the activities necessary for social reproduction and by that he means all the activities which at a given historical time society at that time believes are necessary for a fully human life it's always the same idea and so that's that's a kind of concept of work i operate with intentional activity seeking to achieve a useful outcome to fulfill a need, usually someone else's, but also one's own needs. And the only extra dimension I think is entailed in this, which is not necessarily spelled out so clearly by the other, is the idea of technicity or technique. Because if you say intentional activity aiming to produce an outcome, implied in it analytically is the idea that if the very nature of the activity is to produce a useful outcome, then you are bound to produce the outcome, which means that you have to use the proper technique. So there are technical standards, technical norms that dictate whether your action is successful or not. So it's very simple. It's a very simple idea. You have to know what you do. You have to go by the right procedure, use the right process, use the right tool in the right way. If you don't, you don't produce the outcome. So the very idea of useful outcome implies the idea of technique. And that's really, really important then for all the kind of implications of work on for, for individuals because if there is a technique to work, you have to learn that technique. So learning comes into it, education, socialization, knowledge. People who work know stuff just because they have to, just because they have to deliver the results. Whereas we live in a world where a lot of stuff circulates and people know very little because there's a lot of bullshit, there's a lot of half-truths or non-truths. But when you know how to do something, there's something you know for sure. I put a lot of weight on this. It's, for me, something that is really ignored. The fact that even if your work is very simple, whatever you can do, you can do. And that's something you know for sure. And if you think about it, there are very few things, in fact, that we know for sure. Even very clever people, even people who read a lot, because there's a lot that can be contested, a lot that is not confirmed. And as we all know, our human mind is very good at making up stuff, at interpreting. But if you know how to repair an engine, you will know the parts, you will know the processes, you will know the tools. And if you can actually make the car run, then there's no way anyone can doubt what you know. And you know that you know. Now, it might not be very much in the world, Something. <laughs> it's something. It it's big. more than nothing. <laughs> so look, let's follow on with that quite expansive understanding of work. I think when we have this quite expansive understanding of work, I think then the next part of your critique is going to be fairly straightforward, which is your claim that a post-work world is sort of an oxymoron, that there's something kind of contradictory about a world without work. And I think, I think by now it should be pretty clear why you would think that if we understand work very, very broadly as sort of this kind of central to you know so many of our relations both inside and outside the, the paid workforce and I suppose it's going to follow quite simply that the idea that we have a society even though work doesn't make any sense is that is that roughly where your argument goes at that point yeah exactly work is what sustains individual lives and collective life it's a very basic truism at the same time though if you dwell on it and think about what it entails in terms of 
all that it covers, then it's enormous. What I mean by that is, if you think about what it takes to sustain one individual life, in terms of material actions, and by material I don't mean just producing food, just producing material stuff, and actions that create a real effect or change in the world. If you think about what it takes to sustain an individual life, and if you think about what it takes to sustain collective life, then you realize just how much work is needed. It's always been like that for humans, and it's still the same today. And if you look at just the sheer amount of work that is required for the reproduction of individual and collective life, day in, day out, Marx is saying minute by minute, that you find this expression in some of the great philosophers, you find it in Rawls, you find it in Husserl, you find it in Marx, this idea that human society requires a sustained ongoing effort to be kind of almost carried through from the past into the next day. That's work. Now, if you think about work like this, as material activity of, let's say, quickly, social reproduction, which you know is a well-established concept, then... Every human society is a work society. Now, post-work theorists might say, sorry, I'm jumping now. Post-work theorists might say, sure, whatever, but that's not what we mean. What we're attacking is the centrality of work in the modern sense, in the sense of industrial work, Max Weber's work ethics. That's what we're attacking. And that's fine. There are problems with the modern work ethic, clearly. I'm not denying that. The problem, though, is that if you say there are problems with the work ethic and there are many problems with the way work is organized, therefore let's move past work. But on the other hand, we kind of, I think, all agree that a lot of work is needed. And in fact, then, you know, I would add, you can show that many goods are attached to work. Then past work is not the answer. The answer is change work, not get rid of work or end of work or move beyond work, right? Post-work is not the correct answer to the critique of modern work. I mean, the idea of being, moving beyond work kind of makes no sense when you have this brought on. I mean, that would be moving beyond reproducing ourselves, unless... unless, <laughs> unless. But some people are, are advocate like this. So John Danaher, a very influential social critic and, and legal theorist from, from Ireland, I think. Um, maybe I'm mistaken, but anyway, he's published some very influential, famous uh, articles, chapters, and a book called Automation and Utopia. John Danaher believes that the way automation goes means that in the not-too-distant future, all work, as I've defined it now, will be made done by machines. It's very interesting how most of those utopian slash dystopian writings on work come from the UK. There's something sociologically, culturally very interesting about the fact that it's a very British thing to really want to get rid of work. Now, I don't know if it's because of the situation of work in Britain at the moment or if it taps into an older imaginary, but it's a very British thing to want to eradicate work. Let, let's explore that idea of technology and work a little bit more. And I mean, so I guess there's kind of two, two questions. One is like the kind of predictive, descriptive question. I mean, are the machines actually going to take all that work? Does that even make any sense, especially when we have this broad understanding of all these other things that are involved uh, or that count as work? And I guess also the question of whether it would be good or not. So yeah, there, there's a long history of, of people taking kind of critical responses to the increase of technology and work. So the, the Luddites of the 19th century are classic examples here where they were worried about the rise of steam-powered looms that would sort of drive down wages, take their jobs, and they were partly right about that, and that led to, you know, sabotaging industrial equipment and so on, where we get the term Luddite from. Now, we know that automation and manufacturing did displace some workers, 
but you know, it led to new employment elsewhere, uh, not always for the same workers, so of course. Now, AI is the latest technology, automation, AI, you know, it, it's coming for our jobs. We can already see how it's able to undertake all sorts of roles and tasks that humans used to do. So, you know, with, with this broader understanding of work in play here, I mean, is it, is it possible? Could, could, could the, could the, is the AI really coming for work or is it, is it only going to come for sort of parts of the sort of paid work and leave other elements of work untouched? What, what, what do you see is happening uh, with automation AI uh, for, for human work uh, going forward? I would like to answer your question in two different ways. One way is to say what I, I think may happen. And then another thing is to make a, a number of critical points about the idea of automation will kill all jobs. The catchphrase is technological unemployment, which is a phrase that was first used by Keynes in his very famous 1930 text letter to my grandchildren. So this idea of technological unemployment, that machines will destroy so many jobs that the work-centered society we live in will either have to change radically or collapse because there just won't be enough work to go around. So first of all, what do I think will happen? Personally, I'm... I don't know. That's my first answer. But I would like to uh, outline a number of skeptical arguments that can be made against this, this scenario. By the way, uh, a number of uh, people who work in AI, post-work theorists, uh, critical social theorists, think that a lot of work of social reproduction will be done by machines. In fact, in principle, there's very little work that can't be automated. Huh? So... Yeah, no, no area is kind of, no every area of work, however broadly you define work, is safe from that perspective. And we, we have these books describing how AI can replicate human emotions, can uh, learn to talk in the right way to people, read off the cues from our faces, interact with us on an emotional level, intimate level, even sexual level. So, you know, there's no sphere that is supposed to be untouched by automation. And therefore, as Danaher thinks, um, every need, human need in the near future will be in principle fulfillable by automated processes. Okay, so personally, I'm agnostic because if you say something today and then in five years' time sure. uh, someone listens to the <laughs> interview, you must look sound very silly. So it's as a philosopher, you should be very careful with predictions. But there are momentous skeptical arguments against technological unemployment, a full technological unemployment. The first thing is just from the, the first skeptical argument comes just from the point you were raising, Paul, to begin with, namely that if you go back to the first scenarios predicting automation and technological unemployment, which is roughly, I mean, so you have very old ones and famously there's a line in Aristotle that already dreams about machines doing human work. Okay, but if you go to the more modern industrial times, it's at the end of the 19th century. In many utopian socialist writings at the end of the 19th century, particularly in Britain again, there's a famous text by Oscar Wilde, famous novel by William Morris. The date that kind of kickstarts this kind of genre of writing, which is both political but also fictional, and that's interesting in itself, is 1888. That's a, the publication year for Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, 2000, 1887, where you have this description of someone who is in a trance, wakes up more than a hundred years later, and lives in a utopian Britain where there is no need to work. Well, in fact, it's not quite true. You just need to work for a few years. It's industrialized, industrially organized work, 
but machines are so efficient that you just need to work for the community uh, for five or ten years and then you can retire on full benefits. Yeah. So it's a, a utopia of abundance. Basically already is this idea of fully automated communism, uh, which is a famous title by a famous uh, recent British uh, political theorist. Since 1888, you can see generation after generation the prediction about the end of work. And every time it's failed. So just the history of it does not is already a skeptical argument. And you can list the titles every 10, 15, 20 years. You have a new announcement. That's it. This is the end of work. And of course, it's never the end of work. It's kind of interesting, actually. You say the kind of responses to new technology tends to be replicated over and over again. We think that this is all new and our responses are all new, but actually, no, the similar things have been said. No. So the history yeah. of it is repetitive. <laughs> repetitive and invites skepticism. Yeah. Of course, then you can, when you look at the sheer power of modern, of current AI, current automated processes, and pr probably the Internet of Things is, is the, the most scary thing for, for work, industrial work in any case. So it's not necessarily the most visible stuff that's the most destructive of work. So, okay, everyone is, is obsessed with AI and it is being introduced in workplaces and it does take away jobs. But there are ways in which industrial processes are being coordinated now through the use of massive data, Internet of Things, connection of every part in the production process which take away jobs. So you have this increase in efficiency which does mean increased automation. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Okay, so basically, so... When you see the power of modern machines, of AI, of connect interconnected uh, processes, etc., etc., neural networks, all of that stuff, robots, uh, the, more, the, 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 the scale both at the micro level and macro level of, of robotic processes, a lot of people think that, to quote, this time things are different. Yep. So this time we won't have a repeat of the same story that's been repeated every generation since the end of the 19th century. However, basically for me there are two sets of arguments that invite skepticism. The first one is a big body of economic theory of labor economics, history of economics, and economic theory in a kind of sense of pure economic theory, which questions that. So basically, there's a lot of scholarship in, by economists to show that basically innovation does not lead to unemployment, very simply speaking. So there are all kinds of economic effects. Economists talk about multiplier effects, productivity effects. They show how new technologies create new tasks, new needs. New jobs. And therefore yeah. new jobs. Yeah. So when one job is destroyed in this industry, another one is created in that industry. And it's not necessarily from industry or agriculture to services. I mean, service can mean anything. It's such a wide category. And so some service jobs are not about talking, let's say. They can involve material dimensions, if you like. I'm just saying this to say that we should not think that the old uh, pattern of agricultural jobs being replaced by industrial jobs and industrial jobs being replaced by banking and administration jobs. And then you ask yourself, well, now the machines can do the banking and the administration. So what else is there to do? Well, we don't know. That's the thing. You can never imagine now what the new needs of tomorrow will be, which will be new human needs and new job needs attached to the new technical processes. You just can't, you just don't know because you don't know how these uh, tools are going to be used. We could go into all the detail of the economic arguments and and there are many. That's what we need to acknowledge. If you start reading David Autor and, and uh, Asimoglu and Restrepo, the most famous American labor economists who have studied the impact of innovation 
unemployment, there's, you know, there's three decades long scholarship by these guys alone and all their teams. And then you've got historian of economics, you've got economic theory describing all these effects, the O-ring effect, all of these things, yeah. which mean that just because this machine can do what this person does, doesn't mean that suddenly tomorrow these machines will disseminate across the entire economy because most of the time it doesn't make economic sense to do that. There's all kinds of problems with doing that. And you don't know what the effect on productivity and therefore on employment will be. So all kinds of economic arguments. Okay, that's one big area, which is massive. But the other thing that I haven't seen raised, but I think is really, really important, you know, so I come from critical theory, but I'm also very influenced by French phenomenology, existentialism. And one area of phenomenology, French phenomenology, existentialism, that is not so much read today, but I think it's a shame because there's a lot to learn from them, even though the language is very old-fashioned, is in terms of thinking about politics and the situation to understand a situation in political terms or make a general diagnosis about a, a situation. If you think about the reasons why previous waves of innovation have failed to kill employment, some of those reasons will be technical and economic. Okay, But other reasons are very simple. For example, why didn't innovation in the 1930s kill employment? because we had a world war. And it seems like a very silly thing to say, but the point of it is very deep philosophically. You cannot be sure of the contingency of history that will strike tomorrow. And human history is full of contingencies that completely disrupt the neat, nice, linear narrative we want to tell ourselves if we are only focused on technique. And political philosophers, post-war mainstream political philosophers, because they lived in affluent peaceful, stabilized societies have forgotten about the tragedy of human folly, which all the previous generations remembered. You don't know for sure. And now we know we have wars on the continent, where I come from, which wouldn't have been unimaginable 10 years ago, five years ago. We have war in the Middle East, of course, but it's been going on for a while. But we have climate change coming. That's the most... <laughs> devastating, disruptive contingency. What is this going to mean for the dissemination of automation? We don't know. It might be the case, for example, that if we are serious about acting on climate change, well, maybe we can't afford to disseminate those massive data centers that consume so much energy in just cooling systems. Just to give one example, where are we going to get the rare earth to, co to fabricate the, the millions and billions of robots we should be making in order to have all the human work done by machines. Where is this rare earth going to come from? Where is the energy going to come from? Etc. 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 This is a mass contingency, and the only answer we can have towards that, if we try to predict technologies, we just don't know. It's impossible to know. So if we are just technocentric, then okay, sure, machines, this machine can replicate this human gesture, but that doesn't mean anything. It can do it in the lab, but reality is not a lab. Look, you know, counting on human folly is probably a pretty good bet. So, um, in terms of places to leave it, I think, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you, thank you very much for your time, Jean-Philippe. That was fantastic. Look, the idea of a world without work might seem alluring or maybe disturbing. And for many of us, work plays a central role in our lives. We spend a lot of our times working. The sort of work we do can be central to our conception of who we are as a person. The connections we build at work can be some of the most important ones we have in our lives. The peer recognition that we receive from our co-workers can help to validate our competency and sense of contributing something to society and, and other people. But work can also be unattainable for some pointless, dull, boring, painful or drudgery that many look forward to leaving behind. 
although some of the dystopian concerns we've been talking about today might make many of us want to actually not leave those behind. But this still is a question of how we can make work fairer and better since work is such a central part of the human condition. And also lots of interesting questions around how technology will impact both who does work, what sort of work we do, what sort of work we don't do. Uh, and I think these are all really important key issues for us to all think through. But that is all we have time for today. If you do wish to read John Fleek's paper, there will be links in the show notes. Thank you very much for your time. And this podcast has been a presentation of the Macquarie University Ethics and Agency Research Centre. And I've been your host, Professor Paul Mosa. Thank you. <laughs>